Welcome back, all you weirdos, Krakoans, and everyone with unresolved daddy issues. It is indeed time in this antepenultimate week of Axe Judgment Day for yet another weird dose of X. I'm Jason, and three time zones to my west is my buddy Ruben. Hey, Ruben, how are you this fine day? Hey, doing pretty good. The rain has returned to Seattle, which is a blessing. We've escaped Seattle. I've always thought that it always rains in Seattle. We've had a horrible, horrible drought, and there has been like four or five forest fires uh, to the east of us that have for a while turned Seattle into the worst air quality city worldwide, which was terrible. Um, But the rain came, and we can breathe again, which is lovely. I've never been to Seattle, but I had a, a, a storybook when I was a little, little kid that had some creature living atop the Space Needle. And at one point, he grabbed all the clouds and made them into a pillow, and then it didn't rain anymore. And people's lips dried out so they couldn't whistle because the whistling was was bothering. So maybe somebody should check up at the top of the Space Needle and see if that, that was the problem. Y'all, only thing I, a little, little tip for me here on the East Coast. But back in the... Uh, the uh, Marvel world, we have a lot of books to talk about this week. There was only one Axe-related book actually published this week, uh, but we have a lot of leftovers from last week when they kind of went hog wild. So today we're going to talk about Captain Marvel number 42, Fantastic Four number 48, X-Force number 32 and number 33, Legion of X number 6, and then outside of the issue, or outside of the event, but but still related to the X-Men, X-Men number 16, where we learn more about our friends, the Children of the Vault. So what did you think about this this collection of books overall? Um, I really didn't like the X-Force books. I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the Captain Marvel book. It's extremely light, but it sounded fun. Um, Fantastic Four was predictably terrible. And... Legion of X, um, which I was sort of dreading, given that it's taking us to the very beginning of the event, was surprisingly entertaining. Yeah, it was certainly an up and down week with some surprises and some not so surprises. But we're going to start off with Captain Marvel number 42, The Chewy Center, written by Kelly Thompson, art by Andrea DeVito. And my prediction was a couple of weeks ago that this would be very similar to that Avengers Hawkeye book, the Spider-Man book, and that Carol would have a chatty progenitor judge and it would be her mother. I wasn't quite right. I'm going to give myself half credit because I had some things right, but but not quite. So we start off uh, in Medias Res, as they would have said in ancient Rome, where Carol and her half-sister, Lori L., really bugs me that they have names like Superman, but I'm going to try to get past that. Uh, Laurie is a Cree accuser, and they're fighting a bunch of these civilians who have caught what seems like a, a zombie virus. Is this the progenitor's doing? Is this part of his destruction of Earth? Nah, it's just some ugly underground hypnotoad. I, was it Which, woken up because of something? I don't even know. I, I was I was thankful for that because starting the story, I'm like, oh god, this is another person that didn't get the the memo as to what this event really is. Uh, I was I was really fearful that this was um, another ability of the progenitor that we hadn't seen. Yeah, I I don't think it's said specifically, but in, in my head, it's like some of the destruction going on, you know, disturb this beast that has been slumbering for thousands of years. And so it's kind of tied in that way. At least that's what my little headcanon is. Uh, so they're fighting that beast. And we do see that Carol and Lori both have judges judging them. Uh, Carol's sideways thumb judge is her old mentor, Marvell, the first Captain Marvel. While Lori L's judge is her mother, who is also Carol's mother, Mary L, because there was a retcon a few years ago where Carol's mom was actually Cree, and that's where she got her powers from, not from, you know, like a, a contact tie from Marvel. But, you know, that's all those things. Everything about Carol and her sister and the zombies is really just the issue's B plot, right? That's not what we're here for. The A plot is all about Carol's cat, who's not really a cat, but is something called a flurkin, and his name is Chewie. So Chewie has a judge of his own, and Chewie's judge looks like Carol, that Captain Marvel. So Chewie teleports around, because I guess he can do that. And he did. I did laugh when he tries to catch a mouse, but the, his judge starts to give him the thumbs down for catching yes. a mouse. So yes, there goes that theory hilarious. about you know <laughs> living up to your potential, because you know cats catch mice, that's what they do, but okay. Uh, but it made, made me laugh, and hey, in this book, makes me laugh is, is all positive. Uh, he breaks up some uh, imminent domestic violence. He saves some kids. And eventually, Chewie sniffs out where the hypertoad, hypnotoad lives uh, and just completely anticlimactically just consumes it in one big 
Flirk and Gulp. And everybody involved gets a thumbs up. The end. Yes. So, yeah, so very written. lightweight, extremely lightweight, but I, I found it funny. The visual gag of the Flirkin. I mean, maybe everybody knows this, right? But for me, I was like, oh, it's a cat. And then, oh, no, it's a tentacle beast that looks like a cat that can so, teleport. I, I got to get my last joke in because we're, we're going to pretend you didn't say that. So I'm going to say, <clears throat> here's, here's my joke. So, Ruben, did you like this Flirkin book or was it too Flirkin silly for you? So anyway, the, the Flirkin <laughs> Sorry, did, I was laughing, did, but I muted myself. <laughs> the Flirkin did, uh, was in the comics originally, was a, a, a Kelly Thompson creation, I'm pretty sure, but did show up in the Captain Marvel movie as well. And that turned out to be uh, why the eye patch on, uh, what's his name, the shield guy, he's been, uh, he's been a, a silly part of the Captain Marvel universe for a little bit. So yeah, it's, this was a very silly book. It's probably the best Captain Marvel book I've ever read, which I haven't read a lot of Captain Marvel books and haven't really liked the ones I have read, which, you know, Jim and I haven't covered any of them on the main Marvel show. So yeah, you're, you sound like you're probably about the same. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, it, for me, this is probably like a seven five and it's more just because it's casual. I don't know that I'd want to read this. Like, I, I don't know. I wouldn't recommend this to anybody, but I, I enjoyed reading it. I think that's the way I'd say it. And I'm not sure I would read, you know, 30 issues of this, but I did actually, you know, I read it and I was like, huh, maybe, maybe I need something lightweight like this to my pull list. And, you know, I might check out another issue of this, which is probably like very high praise for like a random crossover, right? Like that's the point of these tie-ins is to get somebody like me who's never opened a Captain Marvel book to think maybe this yeah, might be I'm, something I'm sure I should they'd be call buying. that a big one. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give this a seven out of 10, completely unnecessary. You don't ha nobody has to read this. Captain Marvel readers don't have to read this. Judgment Day readers don't have to read it, but it was fun. And it's certainly a lot more fun than some of the other tie-ins. So uh, seven out of 10, no harm done, no harm, no foul. Read it and have a chuckle and never think about it again. Uh, speaking of tie-ins that are not so much fun, we'll move right forward into Fantastic Four number 48 with an awful issue title. Here goes. You ready? The Taking of Baxter 1234 Part 2 Invisible Women. Wow. So the writer of this is David Pepos. The art is by Juan Cabal. And this is the final issue of volume whatever this is, volume six, I think, of Fantastic Four. This is the climax of that whole saga. And it, it's a real, a real shame because as we all remember, Reed locked himself inside an isolation chamber to try to come up with a solution to this whole progenitor problem, but he keeps getting distracted thinking about just how amazingly wonderful and superior his wife is. Uh, meanwhile, Obliet Midas used the opportunity to break into the Baxter building to try to steal all of the building's goodies, including Reed Richards' very own brain. So in this issue, Sue fights everybody, beats everybody, uses her awesome super soccer mom powers, that is her own line, I did not make that up, to break out of a pocket universe, and she takes a DNA sample from Obliet that proves that Dr. Midas is, paging Mori Povich, not the father. This drives Obliet into emotional collapse. And Sue is so wonderful and perfect that she even comforts this woman who was, mere moments ago, threatening to kill her entire family and steal her husband's brain. And then Oubliette just disappears. Was she arrested? Did she escape? Did Sue just let her go? Unclear. So Reed emerges from the think tank with no solution, just more compliments for Sue. Well, I guess Ben and Johnny did some stuff too, but they're not important. And at the end, the progenitor, who in this book just looks like the regular progenitor and appears in one tiny corner of one small panel, panel gives the whole family a thumbs up because family. So, Ruben, did, did you did you love this book? No. You forgot the great part with the uh, the automotive guy. Yeah, he, he talks to it's Johnny for a little bit. The whole thing and is terrible. Of, Johnny borrows his car, and then there's some blah, blah, blah about how Johnny can make the car go through the shield. It, it doesn't matter is the point. So, yeah, I think my, my summation is this is a bad book, and no one should read it. The art is pretty adequate, but I don't, I don't really care for the way the facial expressions are drawn, uh, especially on Sue, but everyone in general. I don't like the way Ben looks so much. Uh, his head is just like a bowling ball with not a lot of real texture or character to it. The story is nonsense, and it's, it's a real shame to end the volume of the first family of Marvel on a, a throwaway tie-in like this. So I'm I'm going to actually go all the way down to a four out of 10. It's a bad book. I was going to give it an FU5 because that it just angered me reading it. We have two issues of, of Reed Richards in a think tank 
saying that he's going to have to figure out a way to defeat the Progenitor, and then he just decides, nah, we're good. <laughs> Our family's going to get a thumbs up, so And his narration is just about, gosh, my wife is the greatest, which, okay, I mean, sure, she's fine and all, but that's not your job right now, Reed. Focus, focus. Okay, that's all we have to say about that. Uh, moving on to some more substance, at least. X-Force number 32 and 33. We're going to talk about these together. This is The Hunt for X, Part 3, Craven Kills, and Part 4, Memento Mori. Both written by Ben Percy, uh, art both times by Robert Gill. So, we're told this takes place after Judgment Day number 3. I still don't think there should be any eternal attacks happening right now in the timeline, but okay, whatever. Uh, this whole arc feels to me like a story Ben Percy had already written before Judgment Day ever came up, and he just kind of tossed a little bit of connections in the background to make it to make it seem like it was part of the event. Nothing in the main story depends upon this whole Eternals progenitor thing going on. Craven could have just decided, hey, the mutants are the current top dog, so I have to fight them. I'm going to disagree in one respect. Craven is totally bullshit, and if there wasn't a progenitor Eternals problem, he would be done in two seconds. <laughs> That's why you need it in this event. I guess he, he's, I mean, he should no be done in two seconds to these anyway. people at all. Black Tom should have noticed that he came through the gates. Krakoa should take came through the gates, and he should be able to just swallow up. It should have known that he was causing problems. I, I just think it's, I don't know. I don't think he's a real threat to these characters. He's he's not a bad character, right? He's interesting, but... He's interesting, and I, I am glad, again, that they acknowledge that this isn't the original Craven anymore, that he is a clone, and that's part of his motivation. So, you know, half a thumb up for, for continuity. Yeah, he's a guy with a knife. Yep. So the, the the story is that he's first he starts taking out mutants at random. He he kills off Maggot, who I think has died three or four times already in the Krakoan era. Kills off some randos. He captures uh it's I thought it was Angel at first, but I think every character with wings is Angel. But this is Icarus, who is Jay Guthrie, Cannonball's younger brother, kills him. He's been dead a couple times, but not before Jay tells Craven that the most dangerous mutant is Wolverine. I notice he doesn't say Logan, but everyone assumes that he means Logan. So um, I'm just not going to comment on that. But everyone knows when you say the most dangerous mutant is Wolverine, everyone knows which Wolverine you mean. So now Craven's after Wolverine, uh, but Wolverine's is off in the Arctic fighting that ice golem. So again, the continuity here works, which it should because Ben Percy wrote that book too, so... Not huge amounts of credit, but some credit. Uh, Craven takes Beast hostage and has him explain how his holodeck uh, danger room, shadow room thing works. And, you know, just a little bit of silliness with Deadpool. Deadpool bites off his own tongue to leave as a clue. Uh, Logan gets back and goes to the point uh, to fight Craven in the savage land, the fake savage land, to try to prove who is the toughest. I mean, does it, don't Logan and Beast have a lot of more important things to do right now? Shouldn't at least they be commenting on that? Hey, we're under attack by the Eternals. We have this whole progenitor. Somebody should say, hey, we can't waste time on this nonsense. But it never, it never really comes up unless I, I missed something. Did I miss something? No. But he wanted, like you said, he wanted to tell this story, right? And so the Judgment Day part is just window dressing on another Ben Percy body horror story, which I'm getting really tired of these. I mean, I probably, if I'd read this maybe 20 issues ago, I would have been like, oh, this is pretty cool, right? It's a different thing. But it feels like the same issue over and over and over again. He just wants to show yeah, some gross out. I, I thought that the Deadpool body horror stuff was kind of kind of some of the, the better bits in the story. I did like when his he has this, this new body made from out of the plants, out of the veg by Black Tom. So it's his head on a tiny body growing back inside this plant body. And there is one part where he opens up his chest cavity and you see this really gross little body growing back under his head. And that, I thought that was kind of gross and funny. And again, at the end, when uh, Deadpool and Omega Red kind of try to help out Logan, and they don't really help him out, but they do drag Beast away, at least. And uh, Deadpool's body burns up in some fake shadow room nonsense lava. And you see his still very, very stubby body running away with his head. And that was kind of funny. So it was an okay fight here in that second book. Uh, Gil draws it pretty well. He gets to draw a whole bunch of dinosaurs. And, you know, it's always fun to see Wolverine fighting dinosaurs. So that was all right. Uh, but yeah. Again, unnecessary, just a, a weird little 
cul-de-sac that didn't need to be part of this event. Uh, and speaking of the event- And Craven is defeated. <laughs> Shock. Craven's defeated. At first, it looks like Craven is being eaten by a fake dinosaur, but we see on the last page- so the, we're not going to go in depth on this because the last page kind of spoils some important things. And if you want to read it, that's fine. That's on you. We're just not going to spoil things here. Uh, it does show that Craven is still alive, which well, that's part of this story. So don't mind spoiling that. But it shows some things about the aftermath of Judgment Day and a book that comes out before the end of Judgment Day. And I don't know, maybe there was a, I think there may have been a publishing schedule miss where maybe this was supposed to come out the same day as Judgment Day number six. But still, I think some editor should have told Ben Percy, hey, yeah, we're not going to, we're not going to show that. You think you, uh, you agree or do you think that was a, a good move on their part? Yeah, they should have cut it. I, I actively got angry when I saw the end. And it's not that it really spoils anything that's not expected from the event. It just feels like Ben Percy wasn't the person that should have shown that scene, given that he wasn't a key player in kind of crafting this event. Yeah, it's a thing that uh, Kieran Gillen should have gotten to show us. And again, it's nothing too crazy, but it, it kind of lowers some of the stakes because things that we probably could have guessed would happen do happen, but it, you still want that that little doubt in your mind, like, oh, maybe it's not going to work out that way. And this this totally takes away that doubt. So overall, these two issues, the art was quite nice. Uh, they're not for me, but I'm going to say they're not terrible, right? They're probably like sevens is where I'd probably objectively score them on a personal level because I'm kind of getting tired of where X-Force is going. I'm probably more around the six range. Yeah. If there was actually nothing about Judgment Day in these books, if this just was a two-issue arc that uh, Ben Percy was doing in X-Factor, I might be around a seven. I, I think he missed an opportunity to expand on Beast's character here because this is just the same one-note Beast we've been getting for a while. Maybe going forward in Wolverine, there's some B stuff coming up. He still could have set things up, I think, a little better. Give us a little more texture to Beast and would have made this feel something more important. Yeah, with the, the tie-ins to the event that aren't good tie-ins, I'm also down at a, a 6 out of 10. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say about this is the Omega Red Sage relationship is really bizarre to me. I guess I don't know enough about Sage, but she really seems to have no issue with him being a horrible human being and almost encourages it. Yeah, it started off kind of interesting that, oh, it's kind of weird that she has this connection with him, but it's it really feels kind of dumbed down in the past couple issues. It's instead of being something smart and unexpected, now it's just, yeah, he's a, he's a bad guy and that you're even okay with him eating like the corpses of uh, husks that never were sold. Yeah, yeah. He, he just eats. He just eats corpses. Yeah. That's yeah, what just he go does. Over meet those corpses. No big deal. You be you do you corpse eater. <laughs> I, I am kind of looking forward to that beast story in Wolverine, and we'll, we'll see if this whole beast character arc goes anywhere because it's time to move that forward. But speaking of moving forward, well, well, I guess instead of moving forward, we're kind of moving backwards because we're going on to Legion of X number six, holding the line, written by Cy Spurrier, art by Raphael Pimentel, and this does jump backwards in our timeline. It goes back to, uh, it has a, a weird editor's note. What does it say? It says, this issue was best experienced after reading Axe Judgment Day number one. Ooh, that was a long time ago. And X-Men Red numbers five and six. It was, it was a really good issue, but I've got to admit here, I did not manage to get entirely caught up on Legion of X. So there's some parts of this issue I'm going to be leaning on my uh, my buddy Ruben here to explain because they went way over my head. Yeah, this book is pretty dense. And actually, I've been doing a reread of the first six issues. And I've started to come around to like the series a lot more than I have been liking it. And I've sort of shocked myself in realizing how little I actually understood issue to issue what was going on until I started reading it over again. It's always nice when you reread something and you see more in it than you saw the first time. Because too often when I'm reading something, I have like high hopes. Oh, this is going to go somewhere. This is going to go somewhere. And then if you go back and read it, and say, oh, that, that never actually went anywhere. It feels, it feels worse in retrospect. So it's always nice when there's actually more there than your thought. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to my little, uh, little catch up reading here. So the overall theme of the story is, as I kind of alluded to in our intro, it is it is a daddy issues kind of book. Now, that's a theme that's been done a whole lot in comics, usually pretty badly. But this time, it's, it's done really well. 
We see Legion, you know, David. We see his relationship with his father and with Magneto, with his own legionnaires, and even with Oranos, and how each of these relationships involve like a different view on what it means to be a father, which I wasn't expecting that kind of depth from this book, but it, it really is there. So basically, this takes place um, as Uranus is showing up on Mars to wreck house. And we saw at some point, you know, he he um, interrupted the, I, I forget what their group is called, but the Council of... Great Ring. Great Ring. Thank you. Yeah. He interrupted the Great Ring. And then, you know, he's like wrecking house and then Legion shows up and pulls him out and takes him into the upper atmosphere, right? And then I think they battle for about a minute, right? And then he kind of returns and continues to lay waste to Araco. And you wonder like how how could Legion have been defeated, right? Because he's pretty yeah, much I think both of us assumed that Legion was killed. At least at least I did. But it turns out not not so much, which now that I think about it, like all this that whole altar thing exists in Legion's head. And it turns out that's where Nightcrawler is hiding all the uh the people he's rescuing. So I don't even know what happens to that space if Legion actually dies. Yeah, basically everybody. So this was one of the things I didn't quite get, but now understand. So basically the astral plane is a another dimension that's kind of an overlay on our dimension and all minds are in the astral plane. So every hero's minds in the astral plane. David Haller's minds has been structured into this dimension, the altar, and he actually has kind of an opening to the astral plane in it. So you can access the astral plane from his mind. But in one of the issues that I guess you haven't read yet, basically, he said, you know, if I'm destroyed, then everybody who's in the altar is basically just going to be in the astral plane. And then the problem with that is, I guess there's a lot of psychic spirits that will try to. Yeah, a lot of you know, destroy like you. Dr. Strange type baddies in that plane. I yeah, imagine. yeah, exactly. So if you get cast into the astral plane, that's not good. <laughs> but you're not immediately wiped out, right? Like his brain, okay. his, I guess, mind could go away and then everybody would just be cast adrift in the astral plane. Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad that was actually set up then. Uh, so th I like the structure of this book because we start on the top of Olympus Mons. It says now, but it's not immediately clear when now is, but it, it turns out we're at least after the whole Oranos attack on Araco has been resolved, right? The, the, the crisis is over. We don't know exactly. The progenitor is still around because the progenitor shows up and has this little little chat with David. And you know, David's been expecting him. And so the whole book is David explaining to the progenitor what went on between him and Oranos and Magneto and everybody else. So it was a, a, a cool structure. I like that. We do get a uh, a map showing a little more detail on exactly what Oranos did to Araco. We see sections that had more than 65% losses, some section between 35 and 65%, some weird, weird bands to, to make your numbers into, but that's fine. But so yeah, we get, do see that there is a real, some real bad stuff happening. We get some more detail on when Iska turned against the council. Uh, we see how Nightcrawler kind of tricked her into shaking hands with him uh, because she can't lose in matters of etiquette. So when he offers to shake hands, she has to do that. And that's when he bamps her out over the ocean and she ends up fighting one of those sea creatures. That was kind of fun. Kind of silly. Yeah, I, I loved it. I loved how I challenged her. And then he's like, okay, you win. <laughs> and then disappeared. Again, things we've seen before, but adding enough texture and different point of view to go, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I, I'm good with that. Uh, then we see uh, during this confrontation between David and Oranos, uh, Kurt is just bamfing all over the, the planet and uh, grabbing Iraqi people and teleporting them into the altar. Like kind of a safe place to hang out. And David's kind of feeding him some power to keep his, you know, teleportation energy up. And we also see this confrontation between him and Oranos. And this page was a little bit on the edge of too weird for me. Uh, the, the, the art goes kind of colored pencil look. Uh, we hear about all these different contests that they have against each other in during the 10 seconds they're fighting in this like astral mind versus mind situation. And it starts to feel a little bit like X of Tens, where we hear they had like a, a music contest. You see Oranos playing guitar, which, uh, at, no. You see they're, they're having a dance contest, which Oranos with the top hat and a cane, like he's going to say, putting on the Ritz. 
uh, I, I don't need that. I, I just laughed about this because it made me think of, you know, think of any manga or anime, right? Where the characters, you know, two very powerful characters show up and they have some big right. fight, right? And this I mean, is he, trying he to take look it like to like he's in Dragon Ball. Yeah, this That's is trying to take it to like, like even a level above that. It's like they're so powerful that like they don't, you know, belittle themselves by fighting with fists. It's a, I don't even know if it's a mind fight, right? It's like a thought, it's a battle of ideals or something like that. But then yeah. they come to the conclusion that like, whoa, we're we're evenly matched. And I, I decided sort of, I came silly, down right? on the point where I'm okay with it because it's one page. It's one page, yeah. It's right. not and an X event. Tens, this went on for multiple <laughs> issues and we kept going like, come on, really? They're, they're having a drinking contest or putting a puzzle together again, again, again. For one page, I can go, okay, it's impossible to really put on paper what a battle of these two amazingly powerful minds would do. So yeah, draw something silly. I can go with it. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's it's whether or not you think it's funny. I, I think some of the stuff like the showman uh, top hat dancing picture is just hilarious to me. And and the guitar is just stupid. But again, I, I don't know. It hits my humor. It's it's quick enough that I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm just glad it was one page. So yeah, again, we see you know, Kurt bamfing around trying to do his thing. Not all the Iraqi like to be rescued, of course. And we see that uh, so once they're evenly matched, they kind of have this conversation, Oranos and David, and uh, no, talks about David's philosophy. What is he up to here? Uh, because David has this weird relationship. Well, he has a bad relationship with Charles Xavier, right? He just doesn't get along with dad at all, which means that all the Krakoan people, it's really his father's world, right? This is his father's dream. His father's in charge. So his relationship to everybody is going to be filtered through that strained relationship with his father. So Orono says, hey, sure, you die for the greater good. That's fine. But would you die for these people before you, before you get to put your, your stamp on them? Would you die for your father's people? Ooh, that's, that's a good little line from this evil SOB, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> and uh, Orono says a thing that I'm not quite sure about again. He says, you know, boy, I have had many sons of my own by blood or by oath. And I guess we're just forgetting the whole eternal reproduction thing here. Or, you know, Orono's is just making stuff up to get under David's skin. I'm fine with that. Yeah. And then he says, they were disappointments too. And that pushes David over the edge. Yeah. And Druig is in that line, right? I know they're not like naturally born sons, but for whatever reason, the Eternals view each other. Yeah. The Celestials create them in these family units. Yeah. So maybe that's what by blood means in this context. But yes, again, I think that's what knows, just, just needling David. It doesn't have to be true. So that's when David's concentration slips and that's when knows wins the battle and he's about to die here and then somebody who shows up who i thought this was cosmic ghost rider because <laughs> it's a, a guy with a blue flaming skull and he's got change on his arms and to me that means cosmic ghost rider. Like, oh we haven't seen him in a long time but i guess that's not actually him you tell you explain this ruben because i yeah, don't know what's so, going on so here. this is banshee and in um so he's merged with a spirit of variance not vengeance Variance, yes. And so allegedly, so this is still a mystery. We don't exactly know what has happened here. But what we do know is that this spirit is an outcast from the spirits of vengeance that typically inhabit a ghost rider. And Banshee has merged with this spirit because first, if you recall, he was in a relationship with Moira and then she skinned him alive in... <laughs> Um, what was Inferno. it? Yeah, or it wasn't Inferno. It was the X Lives Deaths. Oh, of X, X Lives X Deaths. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yes. So that's how she got onto um onto Krakoa, just like Craven did with with Deadpool's head. But yeah, so so he felt betrayed there, you know, by and obviously experienced some sort of major trauma getting skinned alive. Um, and then he at the beginning of the Legion series was possessed by the skin jacker who again, you know, kind of abused and used his body. And so after the skin jacker was cast out of his body, he was approached by uh, mother righteous, who is one of these characters from the astral plane, basically a, a deal making demon, as far as we can tell. All and right. since we did the, see Shaw, saw her show up in uh, immortal X-Men two and did a deal with uh, Shaw, same character, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. And the idea is like, since the altar has an opening to the astral plane, she was able just to walk onto the altar. And she, you know, approached Banshee and was like, hey, you know, you've you've been abandoned by your lover. You've experienced horrible trauma. You've been dispossessed to your body. How would you like to never be alone again? And 
you know, also have kind of unfettered power. And we don't see him accept the deal. We don't exactly understand what, you know, the terms of the deal were, but basically he accepted it. And since then, he has been kind of part of her team, alternating between this sort of like ghost persona and, you know, Banshee body. And she's kind of like essentially his, her, I guess, her first acolyte. And we don't know what her agenda is yet either. But in any event, he he's part of her crew at this point. Oh, interesting. So that sounds like a very size Spurrier kind of a plot line, uh, you know, for, for good and bad. But I, I am interested in finding out where that goes. So, so in this book, he convinces David, you got to leave this fight. You can't die now. You have some stuff to do here among the living. You may want to be this, this great martyr and have this wonderful heroic end, but that's like a selfish impulse on his part. The unselfish thing to do is to live, and he's the only one powerful enough. Even Oranos is off the planet now. All his armories are still wreaking havoc. So David has to fly around and, you know, put a stop to all of those. Yeah. And Mother Righteous approached David at the beginning of the first Legion series, and apparently he, you know, rejected her offer. And since then, this this kind of modified Banshee has been in conversation with her asking, you know, isn't David key to your plan? And, you know, shouldn't you save him? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, because there's been other times where David's been, you know, close to being killed off. And, you know, she said, yes, he's key to a plan, but this isn't the time to act. I guess now with Uranus being here, this was the time for him to intervene. Interesting. So, and that sounds cool because it it's an, an actual intersection of the plot line of this series and the plot line of the event. And it sounds like they make, make really good sense together. They yes. affect each other in a, yes. in a meaningful way. So David does all that stuff and he then does and has a little conversation with Magneto right before that whole group uh, goes off to Earth to confront Orno. So this is after Magneto has had his heart ripped out, using his magnet powers to make his blood circulate because why not? Uh, but this is a little chat again where David wants to go with them, but Magneto says, no, no, you have to stay here. And David thinks he's being rejected, that he's not good enough. Yeah, just but like Charles Magneto, always does. Yep. And th- this is this conversation he's had with his dad, like in a lot of issues, right? Where he's like, no, David, you're too unstable for me to trust you to do anything important, right? And this is the different, right? Eric is basically saying, no, you don't understand. Like, I'm trusting you to do something more important than fighting one bad guy, right? Like, you have to, you know, save these people. Yeah. So you have to, you need someone who can hold off all these machines. You have to do this across the whole planet and no one else can do that. So, and then he says, uh, I trust you, he says to David, which I don't think David's ever heard that from his dad ever once in his entire life. No. Uh, that's a giant moment and very meaningful to him. Yeah. And, and what's going to happen when Magneto's dead, right? Like when he realizes that he died. Right. Magneto gets to go off and be the martyr, which is, again, kind of what I think David wanted to be. But the, the he sacrifices the ability to be a martyr, which is a little weird, but it, it makes sense in context. And we see Magneto die again, and we see David live and live in a way that saves you know, a lot of people on the planet. Uh, we we see a one panel of Charles Xavier's reaction. We see back on Olympus, he's talking to the progenitor again and said, hey, I'm not really sure if I did the right thing. Should I have done this? Uh, should Magneto have been the one to live? Should I have been the one to die? Did I do the right thing? And the progenitor kind of bows his head and gives him the thumbs up. But that doesn't really seem very satisfying to David. He says, I'm not reassured. Uh, it's easy to turn the thumb at someone's choices, but living with them, you'll never understand that. Uh, but he knew, which I think means Magneto. I'm not, yeah, it's that's not my take. totally clear who the he is in that, that panel. And then David says, I rule me, which I gather was kind of his catchphrase from a previous series. That's, yeah, since Spurrier's been writing him, that basically started in um, X-Men Legacy, like 20 some odd years ago. Okay. Where and was, that was Spurrier as well? It was Spurrier, yep. It was sort of his first story with Legion, and that was all about um, David trying to get control of all of his multiple personalities and not being kind of at their mercy and for once having kind of a core guiding personality that controls all those sub-personalities of his. Okay. Now, just in black and white, it seems a little Steve Ditko objectivist. I rule me. Little Anne Randian, but I guess in context, maybe not so much. 
Yeah, no, I think it's very literal. Like I, this version of David Haller, rule all of the hundreds of thousands of other personalities. A, a legion of personalities, as it were. Yes, and he doesn't like the name Legion. If if you didn't know that, he that's he views that title as sort of an insult. You know, making fun well, of I his mean, mental the, disability. The, the biblical references, you know, a, a demon saying, "I am Legion." So it's not. It wasn't a compliment back then either. So I, I can see where that comes from. That makes sense. But yeah, overall, this was a really good book. There were some bits I didn't understand. I understand more now. Thank you. Thank you, Ruben. But I'm going to go back and, and read the rest to really get it. The art is strong. Uh, I, David's hair looks always kind of weird to me. But again, that's just what David's hair looks like. So I can't blame yeah. the artist for that. If it doesn't do that, he is a very generically drawn character. It's less extreme than I've seen. In, I mean, sometimes his hair is like three, four feet long and just pointing way up in the air. So this is almost like an anime character, onion top kind of hair. Okay, Goku. that's fine. Yeah, a little Goku. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of Goku, actually. He could, uh, that, there's somebody has must have done a Legion versus Goku, you know, fan comic or something. That must exist out there. But yeah, so the, the again, the astral battle was a little on the edge of a little too cutesy, but one page, I'll go for it. So I'm going to give this book a tentative uh, 8.3 out of 10, nice. which I, I reserve the right yeah. to increase that after I go back and read issues three, three through five and say, okay, this is really where it fits in. So that, that's where I am. Yeah. I've been, I want to say series wide, I've really been feeling like, oh, maybe this was more of a seven series, but I'm coming around to think that actually it might be, you know, I may have been underrating it. So I, I fear that it might be too complicated and that it's maybe not long for the world because- these complicated series sometimes, you know, turn people off. But hopefully, since at least he's kind of an architect of of the Sins of Sinister storyline, there might be a little more, you know, leg for this series yeah, to continue a little I, bit. I'm sure we'll be talking about this series a little bit going forward after our event wraps up. So we'll we'll see how it goes. Okay, so now we are done with all the books from the last two weeks that had anything to do with Axe Judgment Day. But we are not done with our friends the mutants yet. We have one more book to talk about, and this is X-Men number 16, The Mutant We Left Behind, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Joshua Kassara, and this is back with our Children of the Vault story that Ruben especially was was really high on last time. So we're going to Yes, I'm excited to talk about this, and I am happy to say as as an early spoiler, I actually, for the first time, am excited about Dugan's X-Men story. I thought he's been a pretty mediocre X-Men writer, and it feels like he finally has a story to tell, which is cool. Yeah, that book really hasn't gone anywhere. It never felt like a central part of the story. Uh, didn't really feel that much like a central part of the story, even under Hickman, except, you know, bits and pieces here and there. But the the Jerry Duggan book really has kind of felt like a side book, which is weird for it being X-Men. But yeah, now, now it feels a little more important. So I actually, I haven't caught up on Legion, but I did go back and, and reread the Hickman X-Men number 19, which was the last Vault story before this one, uh, which that really ties in closely with this. So if you haven't read that in a while, worth all you people just going back, go to open up your Marvel Unlimited, check out the Hicksman X-Men number 19. Uh, and at the end of that issue, we have Laura holding off the children of the Vault so that Sink can run outside long enough to be backed up by Professor X, because the whole point is this information has to get back to Krakoa. Because if they die inside the vault, nobody learned anything, right? That knowledge dies with them. So Laura holds them off. He runs outside, uh, contacts Professor X psychically, gets backed up, and then he gets killed by the children. Uh, we immediately then see three mutants hatching back in Arbor Magnum. One of them is Sink with all of his vault memories. Another is Laura without those vault memories because her last backup was sometime right before she entered, presumably, uh, because everyone assumes, hey, she must have died in that little last stand to get Sink out. And there's a third person there, only seen kind of from a distance. It's someone who's quite bald, very pale, like notably paler than Laura, and seemingly unusually tall. So it, it kind of, more than kind of, looks like Darwin. But from subsequent stories, we know it wasn't Darwin. So I don't know if Hickman intended it to be Darwin and then changed his mind, or it was always supposed to be a, a red or albino herring the whole time. Don't know. But going forward, I guess we got to assume it just wasn't Darwin. It wasn't Darwin. I don't think it was part of the master plan. <laughs> I'm not going to give them that credit. I actually think that Hickman had a different idea, right? And then he, he left the line. Yeah. Well, and we know we have fine, lots right? of ideas that didn't happen, but 
Yeah, for this yeah, one, we, we'll just it's it's just a weird little bit of a panel that makes you go, hmm. Why was there a third person resurrected at the very same time as these two? Was it just well, the five do things in batches, and this happened to the next person on the list? I mean, they're constantly resurrecting people. I, I can let it go. Pretty we can easy. go with that. It, it, yeah. it, it raised some questions, but I'm okay saying, yeah, don't worry about it. And also, don't worry about it is the timing of this issue, right? Is this after Judgment Day wraps up? Were there any changes we need to know about? Did this maybe even happen before Judgment Day? Uh, it doesn't matter slash best not to think about it. So this starts off with a recent past flashback of Forge conspiring with Mr. Sinister. And the opening panel here is, is really cool because it looks like there's a giant bottle of Port Genosha whiskey uh, in the middle of all these, you know, Krakoan buildings. But it turns out that Forge has made like what seems to be an HO scale like model railroad version of the island wherever he lives. And this is a regular size bottle. Uh, he's talking to Mr. Sinister and he wants something from Mr. Sinister in exchange for maybe like a, a favor later. And, you know, Sinister loves to have favors coming to him later. And Forge lets on how he doesn't really trust the government of Krakoa because we know his past. He's been screwed over by governments many times. He's been used by governments and he he doesn't know for sure that he wants to be completely on board with this government. So he has this backup plan. He wants something about three people from Mr. Sinister. And presumably that means like their DNA, because that's what Sinister does. And two of these, Sinister says, yeah, no problem. But the third one, he says, oh, uh, that that one who Forge says is the most important, that's going to be a problem because, quote, his mutant gift dwells within his mind, which means you'll need to access a cradle. But Forge just kind of smiles. He presumably already has access to a cradle. So I guess this is him getting, I think this is Forge putting together his special vault suit, right? Uh, he's using DNA from these other mutants. I didn't follow, but I, that totally makes a lot of sense. Yeah, after after reading it through a couple times, that's what I, what I think. So we know he has some Mystique powers. So I think that didn't come from Mystique herself. It came from her DNA. He has some sort of resistance to the flow of time powers, which I think that's probably tempo. We're showing that bottle of whiskey, and we know she's connected with aging up the whiskey. We've seen that in, must have been Marauders. Oh, man. I like this. You're... <laughs> You're figuring this out a lot better than and, I did. And then the third one has to be Caliban. Now, Caliban's power is the mental power. That's not like a body DNA power. That's like a, a mind power. So what I'm thinking is he didn't just you know grab Caliban and you know run off with him. I think he made another Caliban. I think oh, there's man. two Calibans running. I think Caliban himself is still back on the island. Interesting. And this part of this Caliban part on his chest is a it's separate Caliban. Oh man, that's that's what what was that, Ruben? That's pretty nefarious. <laughs> it is, and it really fits in with the themes of this book, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, and this is good for me because I I think I told you I thought the party board forge was kind of an awful, boring character, and now if if that's just an you know a persona he's putting on so that he can have this sort of devious plan, yeah, that on, works. You know, Gives him this extra layer. It's almost it's like a. Yep. Oh, uh, a brand type character to him. Just yeah. not quite as layers within layers within layers, but one more layer than just, you know, dude bro tech guy. Oh, I like that. And I, I should say that I, uh, if you're not reading the blog, uh, House to Astonish, which goes through every X-Men and X-Men related issue and kind of puts together all the connections to other past issues. That's where I'm getting some of these ideas from. So I can't take, I can't take all the credit here. Definitely. If you're an X-Men reader, you should be checking out House to Astonish, which Chris put me on to months ago and is just a fantastic resource. So, so check that out. But I, 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 I would love to take the credit, but it's, 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 it's mostly them, but partially them. So that's, that's where we leave off with our flashback and we jump back inside the vault where Forge and Caliban or Caliban 2.0 maybe are moving through this weird world and they're following Caliban's power to track where this mutant is, right? Because they know uh, Darwin must be in here somewhere. Caliban has the power to, to, to figure out where. So they, they go through there. They kind of encounter some other children of the vault. Uh, there's Again, we see this kind of, uh, it is Serafina. We do get Serafina named here. We weren't sure who this was last time, right? We saw someone tracking Forge as he entered the vault. And now we say it is Serafina. And we don't see her again. We just see her, I think it's a her, in only one panel. But this lets us know she's still around as as Forge and Caliban travel through this this crazy 
Technoland. Anything you want to add about that little passage? Okay, he, he takes on the persona of Pero, and but that doesn't seem to matter that much. Although I guess he's the one that was trying to get out, right? Or he did get out briefly, or does get out right. briefly. We're going to talk about Pero in a second. I, I think yeah. the point of this little scene was to have a little conversation between Forge and Caliban right after we saw the whole discussion with Sinister. So I think that's kind of pointing, huh? Huh? This thing? In this mutant gift in his mind? Talk to Caliban? I think that's a little nudge-nudge. And then to show us Serafina being the person who knows something is up, because she saw Forge enter the vault. And instead of just attacking him, which is interesting, she's just trailing him. And now we get a weird scene back outside the vault, but still within that bubble, or I guess right outside the bubble. We see the other X-Men kind of hanging around, waiting for Forge to emerge. And we see basically an argument between the Summers brothers, where uh, Cyclops says... He didn't really want his brother on the team anyway, because Havoc, he's had, had a weird time. He's kind of come back wrong. His personality's all screwed up. He had that whole stuff go on in Hellions. Fantastic Yeah, he was book. just on the team for people that had anger management problems. Right. <laughs> and again, it, it really shows us that the whole, oh, our, our team is voted on by all, all the Krakoans is a bunch of BS, because uh, Cyclops really is the one who got Forge on the team. And then Forge has maybe a joke, but again, we know Forge has more tricks up his sleeve than he's letting on. So for whatever reason, Forge threw his weight behind Havoc, and that's why Havoc's on the team, and Cyclops isn't so happy about that. So, and, and Havoc, the art here is really terrific, but Havoc's headgear, it looks like a, a, like a party hat for a children's birthday party. It looks ridiculous. <laughs> It, it's not it's intimidating. Very, it's very stylized. Yeah. It's, it's his, um, yeah, I don't know. His uh, headgear has always been, you know, all over the place. Some people like to draw it very, you know, minimalist. Some people have it this giant. Yeah. I, I think Joshua Sarah could have dialed that back just like a notch or two because it, it looks maybe, I mean, I guess here Havoc is supposed to be kind of ridiculous because this fight with his brother over nothing, just, you know, brotherly BS boils over where he puts some of his havoc power into his fist. I guess he can do that. And he punches Scott right in his friggin' face, yeah. knocking his glasses off, which that it shouldn't be that easy to knock Cyclops' glasses off, right? His visor? His whole point is that he can't control his power beams. That thing should be super glued to his damn face 24-7. <laughs> it should be Velcro and scotch tape and everything. It's stapled yeah. to his brain. Yeah. And again, he shouldn't come back having this problem, right? He's being resurrected. They should be resurrected without his little damage that he suffered falling out of the plane. But we know for story reasons, they're not going to do that. But still, his visor should be attached way better. His visor gets knocked off. And what happens coming yeah. out of Scott's eyes in this scene? So he blasts this bubble that's over the vault and it bursts one of the cocoons and Pero, who's been in the kind of Black Mercy virtual reality where he thinks that all of the children have conquered the universe. He you know, pops out of it and is like, you know, out of the matrix, right? And he's like, wait, what's going on here? And then he kind of comes to and sort of gets a sense like, oh, crap, we actually didn't, you know, conquer anything. The mutants have put us in these pods. And he's, you know, trying to run back into the vault to let everyone know that, you know, it's a scam. Right? The jig is up. Which would be a huge problem, right? Like if oh, the children yeah, Like end of the realize, world kind of problem. Yeah, right? exactly. And I, one thing I, I did like about this scene is, you know, basically they, you know, the X-Men get over their brotherly squabble and they, you know, put him back in the pod essentially. But I did appreciate that they talk about, hey, we really need to let other people know about this, right? Like get the Fantastic Four, get the Avengers, let them know what we've done here. So right. they, there's well, a backup plan. Forge realizes that he can't just have this be his own little thing. This is a problem for more than just the X-Men. But here, I think it's, at first, I didn't like this scene because it makes the X-Men look kind of like the Hellions, right? That they're causing, their, their job here is just to hang out and wait for Forge. And what do they do? They they free one of the bad guys. Like Forge has this thing locked up, right? Things are in, in good condition. Things are pretty pretty safe. And they just accidentally, through their own squabbling, let out, you know, one of the baddest of the baddies. He's kind of like Beast and the Hulk put together. And he's a real problem for them to catch, especially with, you know, Scott kind of out of action for a while until Gene, you know, mentally gives him back his visor. He, uh, Pero shatters Iceman into all sorts of little teeny tiny ice cubes, which is kind of funny. And they do eventually get him under control. 
but not before Magic has to uh, teleport Fire Firestar out of the way because she's about to die. Sends her off to right in front of Avengers Mansion, which is just a real, you know, real f you to her, saying you're not really one of us. Which yeah, you get back to your Avengers team. Yeah. yeah, and the shattering thing was kind of a. And I assume this was an intentional throwback. Like in the first children conflict, the um, children of the vault like shatter Iceman, and I think it's maybe the first time that he was shattered, and kind of we learned that he can be, you know, put he can put his body back together from complete annihilation. Nice, that's a nice little uh, little callback then. So they they do manage to subdue Pero eventually. It's mostly Jean Grey uh, with some some Iceman making a giant ice fist which is very Wonder Twin Powers, but okay. Uh, and put him back into a new Black Mercy uh, pod thing. And Gene convinces him that, oh, no, no, the the real world is what you see in the pod. That fight with the X-Men, that was a nightmare. I thought I thought that was, was kind of clever to, to twist it back on him like that. And will that come back to haunt them? Almost certain, right? But for now, at least- Yes, it, it, yeah. For this now, at least the well. problem is tucked away. <laughs> and at first, I didn't like this scene because it made the X-Men look dumb. But in retrospect, I think that's kind of the point, right? This is It's been a team for a few issues now, but it's still supposed to be very early in their- you know, and their relationship with each other. Yeah. And I think Scott's a smart guy. I think he'll realize that was dumb, right? We got to get over this squabbling, right? Like, this is not going to work if we can't get together. Mm-hmm. And so work I'm hoping this relationship going forward, I'm hoping this is used in an intelligent way. So it's not just a throw off, oh, we had to have, we had to fill some pages with an action scene. I hope this is meaning. But for at least for this issue, it did fill some pages with an action scene. So back inside the vault, uh, disguised forge with the Caliban on his chest, follow a trail into this big old spooky black pyramid, which is, it looks, looks really neat. This, the artist does a good job of making this look like a strange children of the vault kind of world, which is nice. I also laughed when forge walks up and he's like morning and the guard's just like, uh, morning. <laughs> it's like, yeah. dude, you're giving yourself away. Like, I don't imagine this is the way the children <laughs> right. of the vault. You're, you're inside a vault. Who knows what the hell time it is? It's like you're in Vegas, right? There's no clocks around the slot machines. No one yeah. wants to know what time it is. You're just this is me walking up to the White House and being like, sup to the guard and then like walking <laughs> yeah. through. I, you know, I think that Palace, would You them. see the beef eaters. Hey, hey, bro. Yeah. How you doing? <laughs> but, you know, they they don't get stopped. They go inside and they, they follow the trail to this. It's almost like I'm going to continue the Egyptian metaphor and call these like techno sarcophaguses, right? Some p- beings trapped inside these little pink and black boxes and they follow Caliban's little feelings to the one that has the mutant in it. So he says, okay, Forge explains, I've got this thing in my suit that'll let me carry Darwin back, whatever. They go and they open up the sarcophagus and inside... Boy, Darwin looks different than he used to, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, at first kinda, I was like, "Not a sexier." Until, yeah, until I saw the um, the claw, which you know, art wise, good, right? Because that helps you understand who this is supposed to be. I was like, "Did they change him? Like, evolve him in some way?" Right? Because <laughs> Darwin does evolve, right? This could have been a Darwin, or you would have might thought it was a Darwin, but it's a. Uh, Laura, the one that had the relationship with Sink. It's Laura. And they show her, you know, buck naked because, hey, hey why not? Got to sell some books. She's, you know, wrapped up in, in cables and things and arms arranged in such a way that they don't have to put this book behind the counter exactly. Uh, you see her big claws coming out of her hand, which is, it reminds me of how we saw Captain America's shield come out of the pod. You got to know who it is, and that's how you know who she is. And her hair has some gray streaks in it, letting us know that this is the Laura who actually lived all those centuries, I guess, inside the vault. So, ooh, this this is something we've been waiting to see. You know, at least I have, and I know Chris and I discussed this, waiting for since the beginning of the Rakoan era, right? There's no technological reason why you can't make a second copy of a person. They have like rules and safeguards against it. And that's the whole reason X Factor was around to kind of prove people were dead uh, until that book turned into what that book turned into. But yeah, now we have for the first time a documented, we have two of somebody. We have the Laura who's been outside, who was recreated at the end of uh, the old number 19 X-Men by Hickman. And we have this Laura who's been alive the whole time inside. So how are they going to deal with that? And that's why I think it's, it's kind of neat that if Caliban is another Caliban, we get this double, this kind of resonance of the problem. When we turn the page, we get a memo that's supposed to be a top secret memo back to the Quiet Council. 
it's really a memo to us, the readers, to explain what the hell's going on. Because Forge hasn't left the vault yet. He hasn't sent this memo. This is like his internal memo he's written to be automatically sent as soon as he gets out of the vault, if he ever gets out of the vault. So the, the council doesn't know that yet. But it just kind of explains to, uh-oh, uh, we thought it was Darwin, but turns out that Darwin was actually likely killed. I guess the children probably used his evolution powers to speed up their own evolution, which makes sense. But yeah, it's just saying, oops, this is a problem. Uh, and oh, by the way, I suggest we release the hold on Darwin. And yeah, we should probably resurrect him right away. So yeah, again, I, I hope I hope this is dealt with intelligently and satisfyingly. I'm afraid that there's going to be a one issue quick fix where like maybe to escape, Laura <laughs> has to nobly sacrifice herself yeah, so that yeah. Forge can get out. And oh, we don't have to think about the problem anymore. I want to think about this problem. I want this problem with to you. be for sure. A this real should be issue. at least twelve issues, right? Like I can handle the idea of there being two Lauras. And yes, that doesn't it, need to be her status quo forever. Yeah, that would be dumb. But it would be a fun plot device, a fun you know plot thread here in X Men, actually going through some of the philosophical implications in the main title, which we haven't had for a hell of a long time. Yeah, and we've been had sick. We've been told Sink's kind of a sad sack, right? Having lost his vault love, I would be happy to see his reaction, right? Like reconnecting with her. Although what'll be interesting to me from that is, you know, time passes differently in the vault, right? She's actually probably like a thousand years older than the version that we don't know. I mean, maybe she's with, been right? in stasis that whole extra time. So maybe she hasn't lived more than that because outside the vault, uh, Sink's whole deal was he remembers this long relationship and being in love with Laura and their whole time together in the vault. But the new Laura doesn't remember any of that. So that relationship can't go forward, even though he remembers it, she doesn't. Now there'll be this other Laura who does remember that, and that that's interesting. So yeah, I, I'm going to give this issue a, a, a quite a high score. I'm going to give this an 8.8 .8 out of 10. Again, it could they could fumble this ball. I, I can see various ways they could make this not yeah, be so good. Yeah, they could make this really disappointing, but they're, they're waving in front of us a really exciting plot development. And I'll just give it a, a flat nine. I'm not going to hold back on that. I, I loved it. Um, and I, like I said, I'm super excited for the next issue of X-Men. And this is, <laughs> I guess, uh, the third issue I've been excited for in the entire Dugan run. So it's it's nice that it's finally getting to a point where it is, you know, and I, yeah, I want the I next issue today. I hope they give them time to work with these characters and don't change it up with a whole new set of X-Men again too soon. I, I hope we get to see these things play out. And we do see that the next issue is called Reunion, which hmm, that, that makes that you suggests, think. Who's, that suggests who's, that yeah. she makes it out. Yeah, It does, maybe. I mean, of course, they could be messing with us. They probably are in some way or another. But yeah, so that is the last book we're talking about today. And it's nice to know that even though our event is wrapping up, there's some plot threads coming out of it, even not related to the event, that we're still super excited to see where they go. So that is a, a, a pleasant, pleasant feeling. So I think yeah, our favorite book this week was once again, X-Men number 16, whereas we the, the Captain Marvel and Fantastic Four... Even X-Force were kind of either nothing to maybe a little disappointing. Legion of X, we both liked, even though it's a flashback. It, again, it sets up more things going forward in the Legion book, which is cool. And yeah, X-Men 16, a, a good book. Check it out. If you haven't been reading the main X-Men book, now is a great time to, to dive back in because it feels like it's going somewhere fun. So that is all we have to say this week. Next week, of course, the big book is Axe Judgment Day number six. The final book of that main series, of course, there's an Omega issue the week after that. But next week is our last book of the main series. A lot of questions, right? Will our strike force get to that progenitor's magic button and turn it off? Will our odd couple team up of Exodus and Sign the Mimator be powerful enough to, to win the day? Will the malfunctioning Franken Celestial just get bored and decide to move on its own? Well, tune in next week and find out. Uh, any predictions from you, Ruben? What do you think is going to happen? I think they're going to defeat the progenitor. And you I think, think so? the, I oh. think I, I bet the Avengers are going to move back into the, <laughs> the progenitor. <laughs> 
That's my prediction. Oh, that's your wow. That is that is a hot take. Uh, what are the biggest odds <laughs> on that? I'm going to predict that we do get a judgment on Druig because Druig has been scared. What his judgment's going to be the whole time? We haven't seen that play out in a couple of weeks, but we did see that like at least twice. So I think we have to get some sort of thumbs up, thumbs down on Druig. I'm guessing thumbs down just to to tie off that little narrative bit. Yeah, less less sarcastic. I am excited to see what happens with the Orcus collaborators. And how oh, that yes. plays into um, defeating the progenitor. That's the other group I forgot. We have these these multiple groups all kind of aiming for ways to take out the progenitor. See, do they do they team up? Does one of them get the get the win? And we're gonna we're gonna learn that uh, Captain America is a mutant now. <laughs> oh, that we'd really have the hot takes. That would be with great. the uh, with the I grafted mean, shield on his hands. Everybody's a mutant. That could solve the whole hate and fear thing, right? The uh, the deviants are mutant. Captain America's a mutant. I'm a mutant. You're a mutant. He's a mutant. She's a mutant. What do you like to be a mutant too? To uh, paraphrase Barry Manilow. So we will also probably talk a bit about some other non-actuated X-Men books as well, but the big book is absolutely going to be Axe Judgment Day number six. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Listeners, please come on back next week. And also please follow us on Twitter at WS Marvel. Check out our website, weirdsciencemarvelcomics.com, and we will see you next time.